Stop, hey, what stats sound? Everybody look what's going down. Welcome to the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and on this episode, we're exploring statistics, indicators, and, well, whether they're sound. You get it? Jokes aside, though, I think this is a critical issue. Understanding the data coming out of Russia and how applicable it may be is critical to understanding what's actually happening in the country. Joining us today to investigate are Chris Miller and Andras Tostifra. Chris Miller is author of Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, A Geopolitical History of the Computer Chip. He previously wrote three other books on Russia, including Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgent Russia, We Shall Be Masters, Russia's Pivots to East Asia from Peter the Great to Putin, and The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Collapse of the USSR. Andras is a political and risk analyst from Hungary based in New York City and an FPRI fellow. His area of interest is state capacity and the use of data in the liberal regimes. He's a regular contributor to FPRI's Bear Market Brief, where he writes about Russian regional politics. So let's dive in. Chris, Andras, welcome to the Bear Market Brief. Uh, to bring our listeners up to speed, I want to do their quick kind of intro portion of this. So, Chris, you just wrote a smash hit book in the political economy field, Chip War. Uh, tell us about what you're thinking about these days after Chip War has come out. Well, I think one of the big questions right now is uh, is the impact of the export controls and the sanctions on Russia, uh, because the Biden administration has talked a lot about uh, the U.S.'s ability to limit semiconductor transfers to Russia and thereby degrade Russia's defense industrial base. But a key empirical question is, to what extent is this working? Yeah, I think that's relevant, so relevant that this is the focus of the episode. Andres, over to you. What's what's keeping you busy these days? Uh, first of all, hello, everyone, and thank you for having me on the podcast. And I'm mostly interested in state capacity and regime capacity in illiberal regimes, uh, which is and also data and the political use of data in these regimes, uh, which is probably a, a heritage from uh, my, you know, my Hungarian provenance. So turning to the question today. So what I'm really curious about is there's, of course, lots of talk about what are sanctions against Russia trying to achieve? What does the West broadly, the collective West, as Putin might might term it, but the United States and and Europe broadly, what are they trying to achieve? And I think we're going to say that for another episode. But let's think about sanctions kind of broadly. There is a sanctions regime in place against Russia. How would we know if the sanctions were working, what indicators would we think are important? So let me start by proposing one, and hopefully in the next few minutes or 15 or so minutes, we can bat this around some. Let's start with what I hear thrown around a lot. Do you think the value of the ruble versus the dollar or euro, do you think that's a good indicator of the strength of Russia's economy or whether sanctions are working? And then we'll welcome your suggestions for other indicators following this. Uh, Chris, we'll start with you. Well, I I think the ruble tells us certain information, but probably not the information you'd want to know if you're trying to assess sanctions, because the goal of the sanctions wasn't to create a balance of payments crisis in Russia, um, and it clearly hasn't happened. Uh, The goal was to degrade Russia's long-term growth and Russia's long-term defense industrial capacity. And the value of the ruble is not really an important uh, metric in assessing either of those aspects. Uh, so I would I would sort of set aside the value of the ruble. It's an important question in Russian political economy writ large, but it doesn't really get you any direct purchase on the question of what effect sanctions uh, are having. Yeah, Andres, any commentary there? 
Yeah, so building on what Chris just said, uh, I also don't think that uh, just looking at a ruble uh, exchange rate uh, will get you anywhere far. Uh, and that's mostly because uh, the ruble currently has little uh, foreign market, right? So it's mostly uh, the exchange rate is mostly determined by the, by the balance of payments and not uh, anything else that happens on the market. And uh, it, so as long as Russia is able to export, and, but is but the imports are restricted, it is going to be strong. It's not going to tell you much about the actual state of the Russian real economy. And uh, just to add something to what Chris mentioned about the goal of sanctions, I think that, um, and did, maybe this will segue us into the next, uh, into what indicators we need to look at. I think uh, when we talk about the um, purpose of sanctions, it is uh, both to degrade Russia's ability to wage war, but also to show what the consequences are of uh, such uh, like, uh, unprovoked warfare uh, for the country and for the elites. So in that sense, uh, it sends important signals, even as it degrades only the long-term uh, capacity, productive capacity of uh, the economy. It, 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 it sends uh, messages not to Russian elites, but also elites in other countries that may, whose leaders might uh, think of uh, starting such wars. I think that's a, a good point and good context point here about uh, the more international implications of the sanctions. But while we have you, Andras, um, why don't you tell us about some of the indicators you're looking at that you think might actually tell this story a little bit better? So uh, I would say that uh, that um, what, what I'm looking at is state capacity and, and regime capacity, right, as I, as I mentioned. So um, I would uh, uh, look at the, uh, the budget's capacity to, uh, to, to support uh, its uh, most vital functions, domestic functions and the war and expenses on the security services, for instance. Uh, we have multi-level budgeting in Russia, so you would have to look at uh, the federal budget uh, as well as regional and local budgets uh, to get a full picture of this. Um, through that, uh, you can also look at uh, uh, industrial capacities, uh, uh, which uh, will tell you about which industries are suffering, uh, which industries uh, might be uh, struggling to, uh, to, to, to have imported components. And um, and which industries will need a, 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 a larger degree of state support in the near future, and then uh, which uh, something that is perhaps a little less um, uh, a, a little less uh, easy to, to 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 pinpoint. Just if you look, if you look at just at the indicators, uh, is um, the key components in military production that in many cases need to be imported, especially in Russia's case. Uh, uh, and and there, I think uh, the indicators that you need to look at is is, is how strictly sanctions are enforced, uh, and, uh, and 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 the, that that's not re not always only a statistical. Uh, it's not going to be a statistical number, uh, but you need to look at actual uh, choking points. You need to look at intermediaries, and uh, there is evidence that uh, the, the countries that impose sanctions against Russia are doing this, um, uh, including very recently. Uh, but uh, when it comes to just the economic sanctions and their impact, I would look at uh, first and foremost uh, the budget, and then I would look at industrial decline, and then perhaps I would look at the upfront costs that sanctions put on the Russian economy if it wants to sort of reorient its production and exports to other markets. 
Chris, we'll come to you in a second, but Andres, just wanted to kind of pull a string that you mentioned about kind of defense production. Is there a way we could really know or, or measure that? You mean the uh, the imports that go into the uh, double-use imports? If we, let's say, Russia could no longer produce modern tanks or missiles, they wouldn't publish that statistic. So would we be able to tell? Uh, we could uh, use um, we could use indicators that uh, are not immediate indicators, right? Like we can look at the uh, the, the potentially dual use chips that go into Russia. Uh, we could um, uh, we could uh, find links of companies that uh, um, I, I think it was uh, important stories. Uh, one of the uh, uh, great Russian investigative outlets that has published a uh, report a couple of days ago about how a uh, chain of companies uh, is importing uh, electronic warfare components uh, through uh, shell companies in the Middle East and uh, through them from the United States, actually, uh, and uses them in Rostec production. Rostec is the uh, main defense com uh, state-owned defense industrial complex in Russia. So uh, I think we, we we increasingly, and I'm pretty sure we'll talk about this too, because uh, the Russian state has uh, restricted access to data and statistics as a whole, and uh, military uh, production probably would be um, data on that would be restricted anyway. Um, we are have to resort uh, more and more often to uh, looking at these sort of secondary uh, data and try to figure out from that. And we will get there. So Chris, kind of stepping back to this top level, um, what are some indicators you think might be helpful to kind of understand the, the broader picture of sanctions impacts right now? Well, you know, the trick is since the defense industry is, is so opaque and there's been some good research to try to uh, unravel some of the um, opacity there, but the reality is there's still a ton of uncertainty. We can look at other sectors of the economy to learn a bit more about how other facets of Russian industry are responding. I think the auto sector is interesting. It's one of the worst hit of um, of all of Russia's industries under sanctions. I think the oil and gas production industry is also quite interesting, given its importance to Russia's uh, long-term uh, economic uh, outlook. And then I think other major industries like steel, coal mining, uh, woodworking are very important in certain regions. And so it could have an outsized social impact, even if their aggregate uh, role in Russian GDP is uh, less important. Um, and if you start digging into individual industries, what you find is some that have been really not affected at all. Construction, for example, has been shockingly resilient throughout the crisis, although it might be beginning to change right now. Uh, whereas others uh, have had really dramatic declines in production and, uh, and autos being the case in point, where at one point, Russian auto industry was producing less than 10% of its normal output, uh, given uh, the impact of sanctions and the foreign firms withdrawing. And I think when you look at these other industries, what you find is that there's a lot of pain built up uh, in, in different parts of the Russian economy. Some of it's only going to be felt over a longer period of time. Um, but certainly this has uh, been far from costless for Russia. Uh, and I think the political dilemmas that this begins to build up uh, for the Russian leadership will only grow over time. Andres, any comments on that? Uh, yes, I absolutely uh, agree with what Chris has just said. Uh, there, uh, we have the, one. I think one of the misconceptions uh, about sanctions and, and their impact on Russia, uh, in at least what I see in the Western press, is uh, that uh, 
people have expected them to work at the same time and and uh, even even though the sanctions themselves have not uh, uh, entered did not enter force at the same time so so for instance chris mentioned the uh, coal industry uh, the coal industry enjoyed windfall revenues in the first half of 2022, and you can see those revenues not not just not just the coal industry, other export-oriented industries, because commodities prices were very high. So if you if you for instance look at uh, the uh, look at corporate income tax revenues uh, over, uh, in in the regions, you can see a huge bump in the first half of 2022, uh, which was concentrated in certain regions. For instance, Kemerovo, which is uh, Russia's main coal-producing region. And then uh, this growth was enough to keep um, these revenues fairly high, but you can see that it started declining in the second half of the of the year when, uh, for instance, coal uh, uh, the the European Union's coal embargo entered into force. So, uh, and and th this is a huge problem for that particular region, and it is going to have downstream. Uh, effect on other industries because uh, other industries will service these export-oriented uh, commodities uh, energy uh, industries in Russia. Uh, but these effects are delayed and uh, they do not affect all um, regions at the same time. We are going to see in 2023, I believe, uh, the effects of these export-focused um, sanctions uh, much more than we did in 2022. So one thing that I kind of hear in both of your answers is a kind of, you're both looking at more granular pieces of, of data versus kind of the broader economic top line indicators that we might usually look at or may have in the past looked at, like the value of the ruble, for instance. Um, so one of the questions I have is there's kind of two kinds of data quality data availability considerations here. First is, yes, like defense data, as, as is the case in the United States and in most countries, there's, you know, it's not being published, you know, how much is being spent on tanks, how many are being delivered, a lot of that's classified. But a question is also about the quality of the data that is published. And when I got into this field as a professional in about 2014, uh, Rostat, which is Russia's statistics agency, had a pretty good reputation. So I'm wondering now, from the official sources, from this kind of top-line data, how would you say the, the quality is these days? Do you still trust it as much? And Chris, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Well, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's still a complex answer. I, in general, I think we can trust the data. I think the question is more, what does the data mean in certain cases? So for example, in inflation data, I don't see any evidence that there's people making up the inflation data. Um, but I think inflation data, you calculate inflation by looking at a basket of goods that people buy. Now there's just a ton of goods that are no longer available or are available uh, with with hurdles that were not previously there. And so calculating inflation when the basket is changing um, gives you numbers that probably don't allow for apples to apples comparison. So that's that's one big question is, is, uh, is, is the data being uh, calculated in a different way by necessity, not because they're trying to fudge it, but just because the economic circumstances are so different. The second question is, is with regards to certain data points that in the West or in other advanced economies have meaning, but in Russia don't have meaning. So the unemployment rate is the best example here. Russia's unemployment rate basically never moves. It's sort of always constant uh, because what we know from previous crises is that when companies want to reduce labor costs, they, they reduce bonuses and they have people work fewer hours. 
So layoffs are much less common, but it's much more common to have bonuses cut or salaries cut or hours cut as a way of labor market adjustment. And so the unemployment rate doesn't catch uh, most of that movement. And that was the case in the 2008 crisis in Russia's case in 2014, 2015, when the oil price fell. And so here too, if you look at certain top level numbers like the unemployment rate, uh, you're just you're getting a picture that's not really reflecting what you think the unemployment rate reflects, which is the state of the labor market. Uh, that's not a data quality problem. That's just uh, the way the Russian labor market um, works. And the third thing we get that complicates the picture is that there's a number of one-offs that happened last year that won't be repeated. So, for example, on the tax revenue side, there was a big one-off tax on Gazprom last year, which has had a really positive impact on budget revenue. But you can only do one-off taxes uh, so many times. Uh, and, and so that's not likely to be repeated. And on the spending side, there were a number of really substantial um, increases to certain uh, social spending programs, pensions that I think are probably unlikely to be repeated uh, this year as well, or at least uh, likely to be uh, unlikely to be at the same scale. And so that's, again, not a data quality problem, but it requires you to look carefully at the data to see what it's actually uh, measuring. And I think those are kind of the key issues, which are, are not, again, people making up the numbers, but just uh, the numbers being complex to interpret and maybe not showing you what you think they show you if you don't kind of dig pretty deeply into how they're calculated and what they're trying to portray. So more of a data applicability issue, in other words. Yeah, yeah that's right. Andres, do you trust Rostat right now? Uh well, I, I trust I trust certain data from from Rostad. Uh, I, I I also think that uh, when it comes to inflation and prices, there is no evidence. I haven't heard of, I haven't heard anyone saying that uh, that data was uh, uh, was tampered with. Uh, we do know that uh, Rostad has uh, changed uh, quite a lot a lot of times actually in the past couple of years. Uh, the uh, how it calculates income data, for instance, whatever the like real wages, and. Um, the, the reason, one of the reasons why uh, many people think that that's uh, dodgy is that uh, it, it has, uh, uh, that there's a discrepancy between uh, real wages data, real disposable income data and retail sales data growing uh, uh, discrepancy. And, you know, that has to be, that can be explained by other, by other way, uh, by other, uh, by other explanations, but um, it, it, we, we don't know why that uh, growing discrepancy is. Um, so wait, can you explain the discrepancy? So is it, I guess, their you know, retail data is going up or down and uh, disposable income is going the other way? What, yes, exactly. This? So, so like, uh, for, we would expect a larger uh, real uh, wages, real disposable income drop uh, from the, the available retail data than, uh, Rost, than what Rostov tells us. And that might just be that, um, like, when you look at when you look at retail data, you, all, you of course also need to, to uh, separate uh, food retail from non-food retail. Uh, it can just be that Russians are simply spending less because they are uh, they are less um, uh, they are less. Uh, 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 they, they want to. Uh, they, they, they're less trusting of uh, of uh, their incomes going up in the uh, in the uh, near future. Uh, retail data is also impacted by all the people who have left or who no longer go because of fear of being mobilized. All that. But uh, what I mean is that we don't have we don't have a. Uh, a an all-encompassing explanation of why this happened. And at the same time, we do know that Rostad has changed the way of calculating the data uh, several times over the past years. So um, so the, the, it is this that creates uh, distrust uh, when it comes to Rostad data. And not just this, we also, if you, if you remember um, uh, the first uh, 
two years of the COVID pandemic uh, and how uh, there was a discrepancy between the officially reported uh, mortality data versus the officially reported COVID mortality data and how Rostat uh, at the beginning of the February invasion or shortly afterwards started pub uh, stopped publishing uh, mortality uh, data broken down by age group uh, because it probably would have allowed investigative journalists to make informed guesses about how many people died in in Ukraine. Um, so it is it is uh, there is a sense that uh, the way Rostat publishes data and 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 perhaps in certain cases also how they calculate data uh, suffers from political interference. But uh, to just to, to, to stress again this is mostly an availability problem and uh, and 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 only to a smaller uh, smaller extent is this a data quality problem as far as i'm concerned and the other question um for us to ask which there's no clear cut answer to is when there are data quality problems are they created in moscow or are they created elsewhere because yeah. um, one of the big challenges in the past was that um, you had uh, regions that were providing their own data that was fudged in various ways to make governors look good. Um, and I think it's quite possible right now that, that that dynamic is stronger than in the past. And I, I was struck by the Russian Central Bank uh, recently calling for more data transparency, uh, which to me suggests that they're concerned, the Central Bank is concerned that the lack of data transparency is allowing uh, other parts of the government to cover up um, parts of the way they're doing business in a way that uh, drags down uh, the overall data quality and, and overall economic policy making. As the saying goes, measures that become targets cease to be measures. So yeah, I think that's really uh, interesting to see the central bank calling for that. And I think one of the things that you know gets lost in the you know, lost in translation here is that when the data about Russia is bad, it's not just bad for external observers. This could be the Kremlin may also have a worse picture of what's actually going on. So uh, final two questions for our final couple of minutes. Adres, you had, when we were planning out this episode, uh, asked me to ask a question about unconventional data and uh, some of the kind of less formal indicators that may be indicative here. So uh, tell us about the unconventional data you're seeing and what, what it might tell us. When it comes to unconventional data, uh, what I mostly think of is that uh, there has been a uh, an uptick in data leaks from uh, Russian organizations over the past year. Uh, part of this is, is linked to uh, hacktivism and uh, that sort of activity. Uh, but to, to stress, if this is not unprecedented, Russian data had, uh, had been notoriously leaky even before February 2022. The uh, difference is that uh, we see uh, Russian organizations specifically targeted. And for instance, uh, uh, a couple of days ago, um, pro-Ukrainian hacktivists uh, said that they had uh, leaked data from Gazprom, for instance, which it might be, um, obviously, first, this data needs to be indexed and it needs to be uh, put in a, turned into a format that is useful for whoever wants to uh, use it for anything. But in um, at a time when the Russian government is uh, restricting uh, the publicly available data and encouraging uh, including uh, organizations, including um, 
uh, state-owned industries to uh, hide this data because to make uh, sanctions enforcement more difficult. Uh, the fact that th there is such data circulating out there and is accessible, if not indexed, uh, can uh, potentially uh, change how we see the activities of these uh, organizations. So this is what I mean by, uh, by uh, unconventional data sources. Uh, of course, uh, it, it, when, a different kind of unconventional data sources would be, uh, could be um, uh, some of the, I say, more like the unconventional data handling that uh, some of the economists are doing, which is in a way also um, uh, an attempt to, uh, to make sense of um, a situation where no data from the Russian side is available. For instance, looking at, uh, uh, looking at uh, trade data from Russia's trade partners and trying to, from, tr trying to use that to guess how much Russia has imported when no import data is available. That's also unconventional data, but I would say that that's probably just an unconventional use of data and not that the data itself is not unconventional. So we have time for our final question now. Um, so I wanted to ask both of you, starting with Chris. Now, of course, all data and indicators are great. We love all of them equally, but differently. If you had to pick one data point in particular that you're following these days or would advise that people in the space or people not in the space who are curious kind of keep an eye on, what would you say your favorite or most powerful applicable indicator is? Well, I think the, the best data point is is real disposable incomes in terms of getting a sense of how the sanctions are impacting the quote unquote typical Russian. Now it's still a, a bigger question as to what role does that play in feeding into the Russian political process, but for a society-wide impact of sanctions metric, uh, that seems like a, 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 a metric that gives you a pretty good sense of the impact of sanctions across the Russian society. Andras, your favorite indicator. My favorite indicator that I haven't mentioned yet uh, would be perhaps uh, cargo um, volumes that uh, you can access to, uh, to to see how much cargo has been transported on, for instance, Russian railways networks. And that uh, often gives you a pretty good um, idea about uh, where exports or, or how um, uh, successful the reorientation of exports is or how much uh, sanctions have hit one particular industry. Uh, for instance, timber or uh, metallurgy. We'll be looking at the politics of sanctions and what the West wants in future episodes. But thank you so much to both of you for joining today and shedding some light on this uh, important question. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you to both of our guests and to you, listener, for joining. It's now February, which means it's almost the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That being the case, our next couple episodes will focus on narratives about the war and people's experiences in it. Please stay tuned for updates. Be sure to follow BNB Russia and Eurasia on Twitter at, at Bear Market Brief. The Bear Market Brief podcast and BNB Russia and Eurasia are brought to you by the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and many others, visit fpri.org. We'll catch you soon.